You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome to Dropping In, a podcast of storytelling and interviews with your host. Winter Olympian Mercedes Nickel. Thank you so much for dropping in on episode seven. Did you know what you wanted to do at the age of seven? Today we have two wild stories from our next guest. We learn about rowing with a broken rib and switching from one Olympic sport to another after racing in two Olympics. Let me introduce episode seven's guest that we'll be dropping in with. She suffered a broken sternum, fractured ribs, bulging disc, chronic tendonitis, and a debilitating viral infection. But that didn't stop our next guest from pursuing World Cup medals on her way to the 2008 Beijing Olympics and the 2012 London Games, representing Australia in rowing. She's your lead commentator for World Rowing Global Broadcast. You may have heard her at the Henley Royal Regatta. She's still in the sporting world as a rowing coach. She's a board member of Rowing Australia, and she does so much more. This Olympian wife, mother, daughter, host, broadcaster, World Cup, and World Championship medalist has some stories to share. I'm pleased to introduce Sarah Cook. So Sarah Cook. I'm going to start you with the rapid fire. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Number one, lake or ocean? Ooh, um, depends what I'm doing. But ocean to look at, but in Australia, ocean has lots of, you know, things that can kill you and eat you. So um, probably would rather go swimming in a lake. Okay. Yeah. Number two, what do you usually eat for breakfast? Ooh, um, I've been having a smoothie of late, so feeling very healthy and on top of my, you know, my <laughs> diet and stuff, so that's good. Nice. Number three, what's your biggest strength? Biggest strength. Oh, that's hard. I know these are supposed to be rapid, but that's hard. It's okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, being tall. Yeah. That's actually, a fact. It, yeah. How tall are you? You're, you're s- I'm only six foot three. Yeah. yeah. So, so much taller than my you. height is an advantage in terms of certainly both of my sports, but I find that being tall and having a bit of presence, it's certainly something that I've been able to, <laughs> to use, but something I didn't, didn't like when I was younger was hard being really tall growing up. Totally fair. Well, you're a foot taller than me, but we're still friends. <laughs> I'm five three on a good day. Oh my gosh! On a good, did you know that I was that much shorter than you? <laughs> I, don't, I think I don't realize until I like see a picture, and then I'm like, I'm a giant. Um, but a foot, a foot is like a serious, serious distance. Number four. I think I know your answer to this one. 
but I'm going to ask it anyways. Vegemite or Marmite? Uh, Vegemite. Classic. Yeah. Number number five, if you had to choose one sport to do for the rest of your life, what would it be? Tennis. Ooh, I love that answer. Did you get into yeah. tennis? Like, have you liked tennis your whole life or post? Yeah, I started playing tennis when I was in the first grade. And then stupidly, I then chose really expensive sports that pay no money um, to be like elite at. So if I could have a do-over, I would definitely have stuck with tennis. And my daughter is going to find out that there's only, I think I've gotten to that there's only three sports in the world, golf, basketball and tennis. They Make are money at. options. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I'll be, like, I'll be like, you can choose whatever you want from those three. Oh my God, I love that. Number three, what's your most played song at the moment being June 8th, 2020? Oh, I can't even check on my phone because I'm talking to you on it. Um, (laughs) mm, Why is it taking me this long to even know? I don't even, uh, yeah, actually, can I sing? My most sung song is Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Hey, can we get a little, a little bit? Twinkle, twinkle, little star. <laughs> but but actually, my daughter really likes the diamond I in mean, the sky. Diamond. Yep. You great. are. You are such a mom. <laughs> Number seven. Can you think of one thing that you can't do? Uh, I can't sing. Well, you just did for us, so I don't it know is, about that. <laughs> we're, we're not gonna it's it's not it's not my talent it's not nope. my super talent you're not gonna be mariah carey no no chance <laughs> me neither me neither <laughs> number eight do you think you know more about the olympics than the average olympic fan yes <laughs> I'm because I'm Olympian, but I'm also a super fan. So you, like those two things together. You are yeah. a super fan. Okay. My I friend really, Anna May is my friend Anna May is as well. I went into my first Olympics not knowing anything. So I'm I might no, say I, no when I was that. seven I told my parents I wanted to go to the Olympics. So it's been like in you. Front and center. Well, you made life. that happen twice. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Number nine. Name one thing you've learned the hard way. Oh, like everything. <laughs> um, <but laughs> I I don't believe in taking the easy way. It's like if there's a hard way to do it, I'll find it. Um, but I definitely, growing up, my dad definitely been one of my biggest supports and role models. Um, and he always had really great advice when I was growing up, which I love dad advice. Listen to, you know, because you have to learn things yourself, right? Yeah. Like. It, Nothing has as much impact as when you've experienced and learned it for yourself. So, but then I would look back and go, my dad was right. It probably would have been a lot less painful if I'd just listened to him in the first place. What was Um, his advice? Oh, it was just, just about everything. Just general life advice. He always, you know, he's had a really interesting and diverse life and a lot of experiences. And so he always had really sage advice for me, but you know, being very much like him and quite headstrong, I'd just be like, whatever dad. And then down the track, I'd go, "Mm, he was... It was 100 percent right. I know. I feel like you. you, you, (laughs) I feel like you come up upon those epiphanies in like your late 20s, and you're like, "Man, my parents are cool." 
But when you're early 20s and in your teens, you're like, I know everything. Exactly. (laughs) You have that to look forward to with your daughter. I know. How good is that going to (laughs) be? Number 10. This is a question that I've asked. I will ask everyone in the first 10 episodes is what's the bravest thing you've ever done? I guess in terms of my sporting career, it was probably changing sports from rowing to sailing, which was something that was pretty left field, no one expected. And particularly at the point that I was in in my rowing career, you know, going for my third Olympics and, you know, being a reasonable chance of, you know, I think being able to win an Olympic medal to then basically stop my rowing career dead and take up a sport, which I'd never done. Um, was pretty crazy in hindsight. At the time, it seemed like a reasonable thing to do, but Mm -hmm. looking from the outside now, I can see how insane it was. But um, (laughs) I think that belief and my partner's belief, like my my teammate gets a little confusing saying partner, doesn't it? Um, My my teammate, um, she she is not my partner. Um, (laughs) We... we, you know, her belief in me and my capabilities to, to pick up the new sport and, and to be successful, I think we just, there was no doubt in our own minds that we could make it happen and, and we did. But yeah, definitely a crazy thing to do and a huge risk. And I think, you know, was, was pretty brave looking back at it. I love that. It's, yeah, really, really. Your story. So, background for our listeners, we met in Greece at the International Olympic Academy. June, two years ago, we met. And there, we got to share our Olympic stories with over 200 people that were also there. And when I heard your story, I was just like, I want more. I want to hear more. You think you should write a book? So, can, for our <laughs> listeners that don't know your story, Obviously, you're a two-time Olympic rower, um, and then you transition into sailing. Can you can you just share your your journey for us? Yeah. So, um, like you said, I went to two Olympics for rowing. I had always wanted to go to the Olympics from when I was seven, and I watched the opening ceremony of the Barcelona Olympic Games. And as soon as I knew what the Olympics were, I wanted to go. And it's the only thing in my life that I remember wanting to do, and that has been just a constant. Um, and, and my parents were amazing in that they wanted to expose us to everything and, and, but still let us choose our path. So there was certainly no pushing from them to follow the sporting pathway or a particular sport. Although, you know, I feel like saying you could have just pushed me down the tennis path a little bit. But anyway. <laughs> um, and so I was talent ID'd for rowing when I was 15. And I was, when, when that happened, I was like, right, that's what I'm going to go to the Olympics for. Before that, I wanted to go to the Olympics, but I didn't know what for. So when that opportunity came up, I thought, right, here's my pathway. And, and away I went. And, and yeah, I guess eight years after starting, I, I went to my first Olympics in Beijing when I was 23. And then four years later, I went I to like London. How, sorry, my favorite part <laughs> about being an Olympian and understanding that, but you just went from like, I was talent ID to eight years later, I went to the Olympics. Eight grueling years of hard work and grunt effort. <laughs> then, and, and you do think, <laughs> and you do think it's going to be like linear, right? But like the path looks like this, of course. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's, like you say, it's easy. And I think as time goes on to really gloss over everything that went into it, but you are so right. I mean, there are days where every minute, of every session 
seem to just like go on forever, let alone every hour, every session, every day, every week, month, year, you know, like, so yeah. it was, yeah. And particularly with a sport like rowing, it is grueling. There is no fast or simple way to the top. Like you've got to do the work and, and that's. I read, no, I read the, the book, uh, the four year Olympian, uh, by mm-hmm. Jeremiah Brown. And it just gave me a whole new respect for rowers. How many hours, just for the listeners to understand, how many hours a day would you, A, train in the gym and B, train on the water? Yeah, so a typical sort of day and then week for a rower would be generally three sessions a day. Um, So it is basically a full-time job that you don't get paid for. And um, you, you normally, we would normally do two on-water sessions and then one off-water session a day. Yeah. Um, and then over the course of the week, we do that six days a week and generally have Sundays off. And Saturday would be our biggest training day. So we'd normally do two quite long rows and then a, a bike ride. Um, so like there were days where we'd do, you know, 10, 11 hours of training hours, not just being at training, but of cardio hours, 10 hours or so, oh. you know, so it. <laughs> so for our listeners, eight years, six days a week, sometimes 12 hours a day. <laughs> to get to your first Olympics. I just want to yeah. like let them know that it's not easy. We somehow make it sound easy like it's go- to go to the Olympics. So. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because people, um, you know, a year or two out from the Olympics would be like, oh, are you going to start training for the Olympics now? And I'm like, what, you mean eight years ago when I, <laughs> when I started, started yeah. training? I don't just, you know, a year or two before the Games go, ooh, I better get a wriggle on and get back in the boat, you know? Exactly. So it's like, when you see people at the Olympics, like you quite rightly say, it, it could be an eight or a 12 year journey to mm-hmm. just to get to that point. So mm-hmm. it is a huge investment in every sense. Totally. Um, and so we talked, um, we talked about, um, in the previous episode that you had a broken sternum, fractured ribs, bulging disc, chronic tendonitis, and a debilitating viral infection. Was that in the eight years prior to your first games? Uh, yes. All of it. Yes. All of it. Yeah. So I, when I was um, 18, I had a car accident um, and I uh, broke my sternum in two places and um, fractured some of my costovertebral joints. Mm. Um, and so that took a while to get through. And also that towards the end of the year, I got really, really unwell. Um, the following year I got, I don't know, a couple of years later after I made my first Australian team, I got glandular fever so I I battled a lot with illness particularly when I was younger and I think my body was you know adapting to that sort of level of training and Mm -hmm. you're you're very immunocompromised when you're doing that volume of of training you know your body's really on the line both in terms of injury and illness so that recovery and and how you manage yourself is is really critical and and you know you get better at that as you get older but you also your body gets more used to to the training and, and, Mm -hmm. and adapts but I really struggled in the early days and I mean with the back and the bulging discs you'd be hard pressed to find a rower that probably doesn't have bulging discs just the nature of the sport but I, I had some really bad back pain when I was younger but fortunately as I got stronger um, my back health has been quite good but um, yeah I've, I've had some teammates that have had pretty serious back surgeries and things like that so um, I'm I'm very lucky that I sort of managed to avoid that. But um, oh I guess the gosh. biggest things for me were um, fracturing my ribs, which is quite a common injury for rowers. And people sort of ask, oh, did you get hit by the oar? 
but it's not actually an impact injury. So your rib sort of moves like a, a bucket handle. Mm-hmm. And when you get really tight and the muscles get really tight and that constant load of rowing, um, it stops being able to move like that as you breathe in and out. Mm-hmm. And so it gets so jammed up through your back that the ribs still try and move, but they start to flex in the middle and then they eventually just snap under duress. So mm-hmm. I have had a couple of rib fractures, but I did have one fracture, which was undiagnosed, completely snap in the middle of a race. Stop and that it. was Yeah, and that was about 100 metres in and I knew straight away what had and happened. You, and you kept going? See, the thing about ribs that I find funny is that I had um, at the 2010 games, I had pancreatitis and they had to figure out what was wrong with me. And a long story short, I ended up getting an x-ray of my ribs and the doctor was like, you've cracked a lot of ribs. And I was like, pardon me? And they're like, a lot of ribs. And I was like, oh, well, I mean, they hurt all the time, but I didn't know I'd cracked any. But you just kind of like, there's nothing you can do about it. So you just... We're yeah. women and we manage the pain and we move on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like there's, well, that's, so I sort of, my friend was right, racing behind me and I sort of like, like jolted. She said, she, she sort of saw me stop for a sec. And I remember it going through my head. I was like, all right, it's definitely broken. Um, and I thought, well, I've got to get to the end. So I might as well keep going. And we were winning. We won. Um, yes. And it was my, my first race. So here we have um, uh, the Australian Institute of Sport, which, you know, that that was the training centre for um, the national team at the time. And I had been on two under-23 Australian teams and had just been invited to the Australian Institute of Sport. This was February 2006, so two years before the Beijing Olympics. Yeah. So it was, it was my chance. Like if I could get in at that point, I knew I would be a strong chance for the Games. And... I don't even think I'd actually signed my contract for the Institute of Sport at the time. And I fractured my rib and I'd sort of had a growing suspicion that I'd fractured it in training. Um, but the physios kept looking at it. They're like, no, we don't think it's broken. And the bone scan came back negative. Um, and I think I was in denial. I'd also never had one before, so I didn't really know, but it started to dawn on me. But when it fractured, there was no doubt in my mind what I'd done. And I got to the end and I saw the physio and I was in pretty bad shape and it was pretty painful. And he said, what were you thinking? Why didn't you stop? And I was like, well, I figured it couldn't get any worse. He's like, you could have only punctured a lung, but um, (laughs) sure. (laughs) And I was like, well, I wasn't exactly that rational and, you know, thinking that clearly at the time. I figured I'd have to get to the end anyway, so I might as well just keep rising. Oh, my gosh, Um, I love But also my teammate, my pair partner at the time, who I'd just been put with, she was an Olympian in Athens. And what you might not know is that probably one of the most controversial sporting moments in history. And if you ask anyone about rowing in Australia, if you mention rowing, they say, do you know Lay Down Sally? Because in the Australian Women's Eight in 2004, in the Olympic final, one of the girls stopped rowing and laid down in the boat. And it became, it was not managed well from a media sense and it has become one of the most famous and defining moments in Australian sport. Even now, people still ask me about it, you know, what happened to her? Years and years on. Um, so, well, she, yeah, uh, no one really knows, but she stopped growing was the crux of it. She was done. And, um, yeah. <laughs> and I'm done. In the middle yeah. of the race, I'm done. I'm done. Yep. Well, you're and, stronger than that. <laughs> well, one of the girls in that eight who then famously punched her at a team reception um, in, the at drama. the Olympics, which also, also made headlines, 
she, the girl that punched her was my pair partner. So like two years later, my rib breaks in a race. I've just been partnered with her. We're like the second ranked pair in the country. I can see my Australian team opportunity there. You are not stopping. I was like, I can't, I can't do it to, this can't happen to her again. Like I can't do it again. And so after that, when she found out I'd broken my rib, she, she'd be like, she kept rowing with a broken rib. So she became like my biggest advocate um, after that. So I I got like immediate recognition for that so yeah well I think all of our listeners now respect you too don't worry about it (laughs) amazing okay so broken rib persevered through 2008 games how did that go um 2008 was hugely disappointing so um I got partnered with a girl called um Kim Crow who went on um she got married and raced in Rio as Kim Brennan where she won an Olympic gold medal we were sort of the the rookies on the team coming into Beijing and we became the top ranked pair but we went to the games and we got quite badly overtrained both got really injured mm. not well managed and we were sort of tipped as a team that could you know, win Australia's second gold medal. But, you know, that wasn't wasn't to be. 2008 wasn't a good year for us after having a, a pretty good year in 2007. Um, and we finished 10th at the Games, which was hugely disappointing. Um, we went on to row the pair the following year at the World Championships, but then split up after that. And then we had a bit of a watershed moment in Australian sport and Australian rowing where... Uh, there was no commitment from Rowing Australia to send or even trial for a women's eight for the 2012 games. And I, even though I wasn't in contention for that boat, I'd already qualified a different boat for the Olympics mm-hmm. and was, you know, a reasonable medal chance. I disagreed with it. I used some of my connections both in the media and politically um, to help try and push that campaign, which was being driven by um, one of my teammates in particular, Robin Selby-Smith. She wrote a blog about this and went live with it with all of the data and all of the information um long story short rowing australia was forced to to basically do a backflip on their position and trial for the eight even though they were trialing for it there was no intention to send it but um fortunately for us we went fast enough and got sent to the olympic qualifiers which were eight weeks before the games and um, we were we were told in no uncertain terms that um, our flights were booked to go home the next day and we if we didn't qualify we were going to be on the plane um, and we ended up winning the olympic qualifiers and and sealed the spot for the women's eight at the Booyah. Olympics. But, yeah the reason i found myself in the eight was because it was at, at a point in that um it was uncovered that i had involvement in that campaign and that was not well received by certain people around australia at the time and it was a bit of retribution that i I guess I wasn't able to, I was no longer eligible for the boat I qualified for the Olympics or for any of the other boats. And the only boat that I was given the opportunity to trial for was the eight, which I thought, oh, well, if that's, if that's the situation, um, mm-hmm. then we're going to get this thing qualified and we're going to go to the Olympics. And we did. It's, it's so funny. In, in my first podcast, I talk about how I almost switched teams to, to um, Great Britain a couple of times. And I think we talked about this when we met too. I was just like, you know yeah. what? Sport can get so political and no one sees that side of it. And the athletes don't always have the voice. And so the fact that you, you did end up speaking out about it, but then they kind of threw the book at you and were like, all right, here you go. You're going in the eight. Good luck. And then yeah. would you say that, that, that kind of gave you some fire to 
really oh. just push a little more, a lot more. It really, really did because I thought, you know, I've been through too much and I've been in this for too long and I deserve better. Mm-hmm. And if there's anything I can do about it, I'm going to get this boat qualified yes. for the Olympics. And I just remember getting in every boat and just absolutely hauling ass from start to finish of every race at the selection trials and being like, we're going to get these boats across the line as quickly as possible and we're going to do the standard to go. Yeah. And we, and we did. And then you qualified yeah. and at those games, what happened? Uh, at those games, we came six, um, which was great. But it, after everything I'd been through, I felt exhausted with rowing, but I didn't feel done with sport. And Wait, as but, soon as but we, at those, sorry, at those games, you came sixth and you beat the boys eight. Well, we did the same performance as the men's day. Oh, they same performance. Sick. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. And, and they, and Rowing Australia had committed for the four years to sending them. They had given no investment to us. We'd only mm-hmm. had 12 weeks together leading up to the Olympics mm-hmm. and we ended up having the same result as the men. And, and to be honest, the, the, the conditions weren't fair when, when we raced. And I think all being fair, we probably would have finished fourth. Okay. Um, we wouldn't have, it wasn't the difference between meddling or not. Would have been nice to have come fourth instead of sixth, but, um, yeah, it was it was a nice way to to finish. You know, showing I would that. have had like my hands on my hips and been like, "What now, guys? What now? We just did that." <laughs> I didn't do that at my games, but it's very like we have very similar stories in that in that sense. Fire in the totally. belly. Let's show them what we got. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And then and- you didn't want to row anymore, but you wanted sport in your life. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And I sort of had this feeling like. I was done with rowing, but I I wasn't done as an athlete. And it, at Rowing Australia now, there is a commitment to equally funding men and women, and uh, that has been the case since since that happened. So it did create lasting change for the sport of rowing in Australia, but also had a flow-on effect um, to to girls in school and starting in the sport. For the first time, it dawned on me that although I hadn't achieved my goals and what I thought I was capable of achieving, which, you know, I felt like I could have won an Olympic medal. Um, I also didn't feel like that was necessarily in my hands at that point. And I had this real sense of sport being bigger than the individual. That that was my real overwhelming takeaway from, from London. Like we've done something which has created a legacy both in Australian sport and in my sport of rowing. And I felt, like I said, truly exhausted, but like I achieved and fulfilled something that mm-hmm. I'd never set out to. Um, and so it felt like the right time to step away. And as it happened, when I was leaving um, the airport, standing there and I was, um, next to one of my friends who was a sailor and next to him was one of the girls from the sailing team who was an Olympic gold medalist in Beijing and had competed in London. She was standing next to my friend and I stood up and she looked at me and then she kind of like scurried off and I didn't know, but she called her fiance and said, Oh my God, I'm in love. And he goes with who? And she goes, this tall redhead girl, I don't know her name, but I'm going to sail with her. So then three weeks later, I get this call from the strength and conditioning coach from sailing who I knew quite well. And he said, um, so you met Elise at the airport in London. I've given her your number. She's about to call you. She's pretty full on, but just giving you a heads up. I was like, oh, okay. So then like two minutes later, my phone rings and I talked to Elise 
within that time, we'd basically come up with a plan to meet in Sydney the following day. Um, I was about to go to a rowing regatta in New Zealand where I actually met my husband. And, um, and we decided that was going to be my last rowing regatta and I was going to switch to sailing. We were going to give it six months to see how quickly I could progress. Um, and if we could get to a certain point in six months, then it would be viable, um, this whole transition, because I had never sailed in my life, not even been on a sailing boat. Um, so, yeah, they, they thought that, like, she just lost the plot and found this rower and everyone was like, you're crazy. And the thing that I got told was you can't, you know, you can't sail. On, sailors have been sailing since they were three and basically rowers are, dullards that sit down and pull hard and go backwards in a straight line and you'll never be able to sail you know like, but didn't so she was, choose you because of your height and like that yeah. you're perfect for sailing you're six foot yeah. three redhead perfect sailor not knowing she anything about sailing like, <laughs> i was like an avatar for her she was just like yes i'm gonna have the tallest crew and so i was the tallest woman in the fleet easily by the time we got to the world championships you went to the world championships and then, and then what happened? Yeah. So we came 10th at our first world championships, which qualified us then for funding. And, you know, we were sort of viewed as a, as a real, I guess, metal prospect for Rio. And that's certainly what we were doing it for because neither of us had any inclination just to go to a game. So we'd both mm-hmm. been to two. She was a gold medalist. So we were going with the view that we wanted to win um, in Rio, but, um, Elise had a an immuno um, condition from falling in um, some polluted water um, before the 2008 Games. And um, what she found during the course of our first year together was that she actually had um, advanced maternal ageing as one of the symptoms of this. So mm-hmm. um, it looked like she was not going to be able to have children. And she was only 27 at the time. So this was quite confronting. And and she had a long-term partner who she's now married to, Carl. And, um, you know, they did want children, although they obviously didn't want them at that point in time. Mm-hmm. But um, so she went down a, a pathway of, of egg collection and, and that was found not to be really viable. And so the only option was to try and, and have IVF and get pregnant. And mm-hmm. so during our first year together, not only were we taking on this hugely ambitious project, but she was going through this complete personal um turmoil um Mm -hmm. trying to decide you know do i have a baby and potentially lose the olympic campaign or or do i just worry about this after the games knowing that i then might never be able to have children and that is such a impossible question to answer and i and i said to her early on i said elise would any number of olympic gold medals make it okay for you to not have a child and she said no and i said well that's your answer and i think if, to be honest, if I'd said to her, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, let's just go to the games and then deal with it, she would have done that. And, mm. and so I, I knew that it, was, it would not have been the right thing to do, even though yeah. I knew that I was potentially tanking my own career. So, um, so that was a hard thing. And she suffered terribly over the course of the next 12 months um, with that process not working out and in a really, you know, terrible way um yeah and um but then finally she she did get pregnant um after about 18 months and her last they said this is the last opportunity um 
and she finally got pregnant um, with baby Charlotte and um, yeah, had a, had a little girl. So that then was the end of our partnership. And I, and I tried sailing with some different partners and some different boats, but ultimately it worked because Elise and I had such a great partnership, but also mm-hmm. because she was coming from the perspective of being an Olympic gold medalist. So she knew what that standard was. And the amazing thing that she was able to do was, you know, it, with regard to the huge skill set that sailing involves, um, she knew where I was on the spectrum and she never expected me to be able to do more than I could. And mm-hmm. she knew how to work around that and use me to um, my fullest effect at any given point um, to get the best results. So it was a very, very unique situation and not one that was really replicable with, with anyone else, unfortunately. Yeah. So in 2015, um, I made the decision to stop sailing altogether Mm -hmm. Um, and at that point I did consider going back to rowing but um, because I was still very fit very strong it was a year out from the Rio games but I did just really feel exhausted um, with everything and and at that point I decided that I was ready to um, yeah to walk away from sport but you're still in sport, which is amazing. You are broadcasting, (laughs) announcing, you sit on boards, you're still like pushing for that athlete voice, which I totally respect and all other athletes respect it as well. So thank you for that. One thing that once since we've heard your story that I do in the podcast is do what I've taken away from your story. And I've written down a couple of things. Um, The first thing is that dads are always right. Take their advice. You may not listen to it, but you'll appreciate it later. (laughs) (laughs) You always had an Olympic goal, so I think that goals are obviously very important, whether you just have them in your own head, like I talked in episode two with Kimi Fasani. We just like have these goals in our head rather than yeah. saying them out loud or writing them down. So the big goals are like pretty important. You had broken ribs and you still got a gold medal. So really, anything's possible. <laughs> And having that, yeah, having that, I think it's important to note having that it's kind of good sometimes for people to say, no, you can't do it. If you have that drive in you that will just fuel that fire to be like, oh, you said what? Yeah, I'm going to do it. Uh, And then I have a couple of quotes here that I, that I loved. Sport is be, is bigger than being an individual. Yeah. And then sport is bigger than the individual. Bigger than the individual. Yeah. Um, and then I did, I did love that last quote that you said, would any number of Olympic medals make it okay not to have a child? That's, yeah. that's huge. And that's you changing your whole career for someone else. And it's really thoughtful. And that's why we're friends. And thank you so much for being on dropping in with me, Sarah, thank always good you. to see you. And thanks for sharing your story. Do you have any takeaways that you would like to share? Yeah, it's just, I think, you know, what you're doing is really amazing with this and, and sharing these stories because it's not always, um, it, you know, we, we have these high-profile athletes who are incredible and amazing, and, and but we tend to see the same people. But, you know, hearing the, the breadth of stories that do um, exist um, uh, are really interesting. You know, you don't have to be an Olympian um, or an elite athlete 
to have the benefits of, of sport in your life and, and what that can bring in terms of being part of a team and being fit and healthy and all of that. So I think um, promoting sport for everything that it brings is, is hugely important. And thank you to you for telling those, those stories and, and for reaching out to me and all of your guests um, to be a part of it because you are a huge inspiration. I feel like we need to flip this around and I need to <laughs> interview you because your stories are unbelievable I tell people all the time about you and and your career and you're just such an inspiration so thanks I tell your story too (laughs) because I feel well we're very similar and I think that's awesome so I appreciate your time and I know the listeners will love your story thank you thanks Mercedes nice to chat On the next episode of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes Nickel, have you ever heard of the Epic Five Challenge? Who would sign up to race five Ironmen in five days? Drop in next Thursday when we drop in with Chad Bentley. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Dropping In with Mercedes. Thank you, DJ Kenosis, for the music and my mom for the intro voice. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, 4Kids Flashback. 4Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.